You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You just have to do what you want to do. And I guess the problem is, you know, switching your source of happiness or achievement or whatever you want to call it to how close you are to getting to your vision as opposed to a bunch of strangers' vision. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'm still trying to figure that out myself as well. Yeah, I think I think for me as well, it's been kind of really reminding myself of why I started. And not why I started trying to be a full-time artist, why I even made anything creative in the beginning. And the labor is the reward. There will always be a demand for good ideas. So just create good ideas. And, you know, that that is what's going to sustain you. Yeah, because I think it's almost like you have to diversify your happiness. Mm. So... You know, for the person listening to this who's driving to their cubicle job at Procter & Gamble, it's about finding multiple things that you enjoy. Like, for the pure love of it, that's solid gold. Yes. It's not about having a full-time job versus being a full-time artist. Sometimes you can reappropriate your 9 to 5 to be a part of your art. So if you're working 
in a cubicle and that's what allows you to go home and build model ships into little bottles or paint pictures of apples or you know do ballet class and be able to pay for it or or do something else then it becomes a part of the process Humble the Poet, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Your your first book, uh, which came out, uh, it feels like it feels like just a few months ago. When did this come out? Uh, officially, I mean, I released it independently five years ago. Okay, right. That's self published. Self published, and then it be, then it got published in Canada about two two and a half years ago, and then it officially published in the United States um, in April, uh, so, twenty nineteen. So, right. So you came on the podcast with, basically around the day that that came out. Yeah. Um. It's it's called unlearn and uh, 101 simple truths for a better life i remember i got the book and i was like oh man this is great i really uh should call this guy and get him on the podcast and then like two days later jay shetty wrote me and said you should meet my friend humble the poet and get him on the podcast then we did such a great podcast we did a part one and part two yeah. Uh, I don't know if you got any feedback from it, but I, I got a lot of good feedback. Well, I still it's, get feedback from it. Everyone really likes it, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. And then, and thank you, by the way, when you were on the Rich Roll podcast, thank you for calling me out uh, about uh, being a somewhat of an inspiration for your reason for self-publishing this five years ago. Oh, no, no, you definitely were. I mean, I, again, all credit where credit's due. So for me, it, it really kind of felt like a full circle moment because um, I really appreciated the transparency in that article that you that you shared back in like 2013 about, you know, this is how much I made when it was my first publishing deal. This is how much uh, I can be making now as an independent publisher. And for me, it wasn't a, a, back then, it wasn't a question of, should I go with the major? Should I go independent? At that point, it was just like, how do you write a book? How do you get a book out into the universe? So you, you know, thank you so much for that. And I, I hope you can take some pride in seeing what, you know, you sharing that level of honesty with your audience, you know, it's had an impact on me, and I'm hoping to kind of spread that impact, uh, you know, on an exponential level now. Oh, well, I, I am sure you are, because uh, this book, Unlearn, was great. And your new one, your brand new one, which is coming out, Things No One Else Can Teach Us, it's just a fantastic book. Uh, we're going to talk about it in a second. I just want to mention about self-publishing. I think so many people think too early about, gosh, what are the mechanics of the publishing business? Do I need an agent? Do I need a publisher? Do I need, you know, to be in Barnes and Noble? Do I need to have all these marketing, a PR firm? And really, like you say, the important thing is writing a good book and everything will take care of itself. And fortunately in this world, the the stigma of self-publishing is over. Like you didn't have, nobody said to you, ah, humble, you just self-publish. It's not real. Like, People took this book seriously, yeah. seriously enough that a major publisher then wanted it and gave you a deal on your on your second book. And by the way, nothing wrong with publishing mainstream. There's just different goals and reasons why you would why you would do one versus the other. And uh, uh, you know, fortunately now this one, not fortunately, but it is what it is. Things no one else can teach us is coming out by uh, a major publisher, right? Yeah. Is it Harper Collins? HarperCollins, yes. And and when I was going through talking to all the major publishers, it was my my agent, which, again, it was an organic, as you said, it, put out the work and things will find you. And it's kind of, it sounds a little bit foo-foo, you know, build it and they will come. But it really is, I think in, in the art and creative world, you have to be a little bit reactive as well as proactive. And it was, yeah, I read a great book, put it out there. Um, I was selling, you know, of Unlearn, I was selling two, three copies a day on a, on a good day. And... Um, 
it was just as I did different things, eventually people caught wind, wind to me. They found out I had written a book. I kind of got into the publishing world in Canada. And when I eventually somebody connected me with, with a book agent, and then he uh, got me meetings with, with the major publishers, when we had all our meetings and all our talks and all the offers were on the table, he said to me, listen, I'm not promising you anything uh, in terms of being a successful author, in terms of making a lot of money or getting a lot of sales. But I promise you, if you go with Harper, you'll come out of it a better writer. Oh, that's good. And, and you think, and because of their editorial process? And- because of their editorial process. And and he was he was right. So, it was, you know, it was the first time I kind of felt like a streetball kid who, who went to the pros. And all of a sudden, I wasn't the coolest kid on the block anymore. Well, uh, tell me about that. Like, what do you think... Uh, where, where, where do you think you learn to be a better writer through going through this process? I mean, on the one, my, my gut instinct is two things. One is you kind of set a higher bar for yourself when you know other professionals are going to read it before it goes out to the public. So you get a little bit of the anxiety knowing that, you know, the buck doesn't stop here. It's going to go there before it goes out to the world. And then the other thing is, I don't know, they do have editors and the editors, if they're good, will, will provide help you know, healthy uh, feedback. Yeah, I mean, with Unlearn, like, I didn't even understand the concept of an editor. So for me, un- uh, for Unlearn, um, it was a girl I was seeing at the time and she proofread it. You know, she just checked for spelling mistakes. And even then, like the Canadian version, you know, which is the bestseller in Canada, still has spelling mistakes in it. And uh, realizing an editor is somebody who not only looks at all the, the grammar and, and all, of, all of the superficial stuff, but they also take a look at the ideas and they challenge you to expand on ideas. So pretty much for them, it was like, okay, we see you write a lot of Instagram uh, captions and people really connect with them and that's cute, but you have so much in you and now let's challenge you to bring it out. Um, so when it, what ended up happening was I, I signed my contract with these guys in about June 2018 and uh, the book, they, they gave me a deadline of November 1st, 2018 to, to finish this book. And they said, you know, we need 70,000 words. So in my head, I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to write 1,000 words a day. I'll be done in 70 days, and, and we're good to go. Um, and I did. And then we had to throw the whole thing away because uh, it was just in, incoherent in, in, in comparison to what I was capable of. And they said, you know, um, in the What did they say to you? Like, humble, this is garbage. Throw it away. No, it was a, it was a lot more of a, in the beginning, I think we were, we were still kind of feeling each other out. And I had two editors. I had an editor from HarperCollins Canada and I had an editor from Har- HarperCollins in the States. And they were both working together. So it kind of felt like I had two English teachers and I was the only kid in class. And I think in the beginning, they were being very polite and saying, hey, you know, we really think if you did a, an outline, it'd be really, it'd be really cool. Because at this point, um, the only idea of things no one else could teach us, it wasn't even titled that back then, was I'm going to share stories that aren't always pleasant and I'm going to show where the magic is from a shift in my attitude or my perspective. Yeah, I, I, like, I really like in Things No One Else Can Teach Us uh, how every point you make about, you know, these are all ideas that you have to learn through through either painful experiences or life itself. Not, there's no course on any of the things that you discuss in this book. There's no college course or test or whatever. Yeah. Life is is the test and also life is the teacher. But I like how you interweave these really deeply personal stories. And I say deeply personal because sometimes you can confess things that I'm sure must have been, you know, awkward or very uncomfortable for you. And and 
I always think storytelling is the best way to get across very important messages. That's how we remember them. Because yeah. we remember the story, remember, we remember the point, and then we remember the outcome once you absorb the point. Yeah, completely. And I think um, what I was just doing is I was just, you know, I was just, I was vomiting it all out. I was, I, you know, just, just at least another entire book that, 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 that got left on the cutting room floor. Um, and I think what they challenged me to do was really kind of, uh, focus my energy. So it's kind of like, okay, well, you have all these stories and each story is, is, is really good and each story has a, a really cool lesson to it. But how do these, where's the thread? How do these, how do these stories relate to each other? So um, when I just wrote this collection of stories, it was like, well, you know, all of these are great, but um, can we package them in a way where people can see a theme, where we can reinforce an idea? Um, and then at that point, I had to kind of get challenged. Or sometimes I tell a story and I'd share like eight lessons I got from it. And it, it would just be this overwhelming 30-page story. And um, so I think there was a lot of challenges that way. So it really felt like being back in like high school English. And uh, But at this point, it's it just the focus was on me. So there were some points where I was just banging my head. So all summer I wrote and then we had to kind of scrap it and then we extended my deadline to February and I kind of started from scratch and this time step one was an outline and I actually wrote about that in, in, in itself in the book which is step one to writing a book should be an outline and it did help a lot and they kind of gave me this idea like well you know let's start at 50,000 feet give us an idea now let's zoom in to 25,000 feet now let's zoom in to 10,000 feet let, let's let's take this approach to it and I think it's a really good way of organizing ideas um, yeah, so I think what that allowed me to do was to kind of take my reader into consideration a lot more, understanding that we still have to kind of package this stuff. And it, and it took me back to my teaching days because how you deliver ideas is, is super important. Um, so there was a challenge there, and there was also just small things, learning about how frequently I use the word actually, you know, and then have them be like, well, let's find a better word, or we can say this better, or I like this idea, but I think you can do a better job explaining it. And I think those levels of challenges were much better. I think before that, especially with Unlearn, every chapter in Unlearn was written by itself. Um, and when it was written, I never thought it would make into a book. I kind of compiled ideas for Unlearn. Well, let's go the route that your editors went. What? So we have this your new book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us. Uh, what's the 100,000-foot view? The and by the way, I read the book. It's excellent. We're going to talk about many of the issues in there, but I'm I'm curious now how you tackled these these issues that the editor gave you. Um, the the hundred thousand foot view is you know we can discover or create a silver lining in anything in life uh, if we make adjustments to our attitudes, expectations, outlooks, and perspectives, and um, that is something that's within our control. So, you know, really taking that life isn't what happens to us. Life is how we deal with what happens to us. Uh, and how we deal with what happens to us are going to be various tools that we we pick up along the way. We may have and we may not even realize. Um, and we may just never have articulated. And 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 I see you, you, you do that through many um, things that happen to you in your life that I, I'm sure many people can relate to, even if they didn't exactly happen that way to them. Yeah. But in terms of your creativity, in terms of your relationships with friends, in terms of your relationships with girlfriends, in terms of your um, relationships to, you know, others who you felt achieved more success at that point than you had and and how, to, and how you dealt with that and, and many other areas that we'll address. It's almost like you kind of divided up your your life into these lessons that we all have to go through and you you tell a story and you give you know kind of your 
how you how you develop the insights and then what those insights were. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think what it is is we're all in the same boat. And on a human level, we all deal with anxiety. We all deal with regret. We all deal with jealousy. Uh, we all deal with insecurities. And I, I, I share personal stories, but I really chose stories that I felt that everybody had found themselves in that situation once or twice in their life. And we've all been in that situation where we've had to bite our tongue. We've all been in that situation where we find ourselves jealous about somebody we care about. Or we all find ourselves in situations where uh, we're heartbroken and we feel like there is no future for us. And I really wanted to take these stories, um, share them on a share them on a personal level uh, for what I went through. And as well as through sharing them, I was figuring things out myself. You know, there, this wasn't the easiest thing to write. Some of these chapters had me crying. I mean, if you guys don't like reading, check out the audiobook. There are a couple of chapters where I'm 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 just sniffling and 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 I'm just a complete mess reading it. We we did like five takes. What what story uh, got you got Um, you sniffling? The the first chapter on my friend Boomerang is is a friend of mine who passed away who I just completely didn't treat right. Um, I couldn't I couldn't make it to the last page. We had to continually do it, but I think even the take we got that that wasn't good. Um, but I mean, it's real. I mean, and, and, and it is what it is. And then so, so this was a story of a guy who, um, was a good friend. And then, uh, as you, uh, you know, reached higher and higher degrees of success or your goals got higher and higher and you wanted to associate more, whether correctly or incorrectly with people who would help you achieve that success, you didn't have as much time for boomerang. Yeah. There are some things that are correct in that and some things that are incorrect like sometimes the time you spend with people does have to change as your own life goals and where you are in life change where do you think and you know and so ultimately um you know boomerang always wanted to spend some more time you were like sure sure but then you didn't have the time and then sadly he um passed away before you had a chance to really you know spend the time you wanted to with him but but going a little more nuanced where do you think you went wrong there. Um, I think um, it was more about making the focus about myself, um, thinking that, hey, I needed to be around certain types of people to, to progress my, my art, my career, and really just making generalizations of like, oh, well, the, this guy works a regular nine to five. This guy lives in the suburbs. This guy has really nothing much to offer me. So I'm always going to put him on the back burner. He'll always be plan B or plan C. Um, not realizing that, you know, there's no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow and I need to be enjoying this journey while I'm on it. And it really, um, it, it really can't be so strategic where I'm looking like, oh, okay, I need to hang out with the, with this guy cause he can open doors for me. Because at the end of the day, what I realized very quickly was even in those moments, I wasn't enjoying being in many of those people's company if that was the sole purpose. And I mean, since then I found a better way of, Hey, be friends with the people that you're around and create genuine friendships. And if, if work comes out of it, great work can come out of it. Um, if work doesn't come out of it, at least you enjoy their company and and the importance of relationships and, and kind of getting to that point of like, but what are you working for? Like, okay, oh, you're working to make a million dollars, but what is the million dollars for? And continually asking myself, and it goes back to feeling good or being happy or having experiences or and or or having things of value and realizing that relationships matter and going out to Hollywood and and being around so many people who had so much but they didn't have many of them didn't have places to go during Thanksgiving you know because they didn't have healthy situations with their family and realizing that hey I have 
I have such a wealth of friendships and relationships and th- and and people that I I can feel safe around and people that I can be myself around. Uh, you know, that's something that's worth double downing on. And 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 this was a person whose entire history with me was just somebody who wanted to be around. And uh, I needed to have shed some of my trust issues where I just always assumed everybody that wanted to be around me wanted something from me other than just my company. And I think th- his his death was the wake-up call for that and just realizing that it was completely unavoidable. He wasn't asking for much. He, you know, We're talking about once or twice a year just hanging out. And even the last time I, I did hang out with him, it was such a fun, calm, normal hangout. He's just like, hey, I just want to know what you're up to. Like, what's going on? Hey, I got some some stuff here if you want to take it on your journey. And it was just, it was a, it just reminded me like, wow, like he's not as uh, in, intentional as other people. He's not, he's not looking for any social collateral or currency from being around me. He's just wants to be around me. And it's been so long because I've, I've been so neck deep into this world of entertainment and this world of favor for a favor or what can you do for me or what have you done for me lately? And it was refreshing and I think I realized that if I got lost in that, as I've seen so many other people, it would be an extremely isolating life. It'd be extremely lonely in a crowded room. And I didn't want that. I think I think that's a critical lesson. Like I remember I was for a long time, I was in the financial industry. Like I had a hedge fund. And of course, the financial industry, everyone thinks transactionally. Yeah. That's the whole idea. Yeah. And I didn't like anybody. Uh, but you would have to be friends with these people or visit them or hang out with them and be social. And I just didn't enjoy any of it. It wasn't, but I had to take a real, really big step back to avoid being sucked further into that situation until finally I found the things I enjoyed and the people I enjoyed doing these things with. And and that changed my life completely and actually ultimately resulted in a lot more success Mm -hmm. like if you go if you do anything i think and 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 you write about this in the book i think if you do anything with that sense of okay i'm doing this so i'm going to get back this it just ruins the whole flavor of it like it never works out well yeah it doesn't and even if you get what you were you were seeking it's not going to feel as good as you were envisioning it would and i think that that was one of those moments where it had it happened to me i just got so wrapped up in myself and um, not realizing that so many people were doing so much to quell that loneliness when there are so many sustainable ways to address that loneliness right in front of us, like with the people that care about us. And sometimes the people that care about us may not have all the best tools to make us enjoy their company all the time, whether it's a, a nagging mother or whether it's a, 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 a judgmental sibling or what have you. But there's so much of that. And instead, you know, I think I got caught up in a world where it was like, no, no, I'll feel less lonely when I have this many followers or I'll feel more valued as a person when I'm, when I'm earning this much or I'm able to be a full-time, art, full-time art, artist or a full-time creative or um, when, when this person returns my text messages because right now they're not taking me seriously enough. So maybe when they see me uh, on, on this podcast, they'll be like, oh, we got to take him serious. Or maybe when they see me on The Breakfast Club, it's going to be that thing. But you're realizing that you're trying to fill a hole that isn't meant to be filled. And um, well, I, I, that, That's interesting because uh, many people say that you shouldn't, you should try not to have that hole in the first place that you feel this need to be filled. But why do you say... Uh, it can't be filled. 
I think it, it, it's, it's an expectation. Um, I, read, I read, it was a really good quote I read. Uh, you know, our chase for fame is to make up for the unconditional love we thought we deserved as children. And, uh, you know, this idea of unconditional love, I think we, we have to question, where did that come from? Where, where did we have this idea of someone or something can love us without condition? We don't have to do anything to earn it. We just have to exist. And, I mean, it can have its origins in religion. It can have its origins probably on television, what we see in the media, um, whether it's wanting our own Uncle Phil in our life or what have you. And I think when we don't get it, you know, we don't take the time to kind of dig deep and be like, well, okay, I'm older than my parents were when they had me. Um, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So maybe I shouldn't hold it against them that, you know, they both had to work, uh, you know, two jobs, night shift, doing different things. And maybe they didn't, you know, remember my birthday. Like even now, my mother doesn't remember my birthday sometimes. And that's okay. And, uh, you know, or maybe they didn't know how to handle me when I was feeling super sad because they grew up in a village and that type of affection wasn't available to them. And I think instead of trying to compensate for that now as an adult and being like, I need to be surrounded by as many people as possible. Oh, no, it's not even about as many people. It has to be the right people. I need... You know, it, it doesn't matter if 10,000 people like my picture on Instagram. It's going to matter only if The Rock leaves a comment, you know, because from a social currency standpoint, he means more. And you and there's got to be a point where you realize, like, hey, none of it feels good. You know, it didn't feel good when it was 1,000 people liking your stuff. It doesn't feel good when 10,000 people like your stuff. Spoiler alert, it probably won't feel good when 100,000 people like your stuff. So instead of trying this external maybe look inside and trying to figure out what what is it about me that I'm trying to, uh, what, what thirst am I trying to quench or what type of hunger am I trying to satisfy? Because I think it's, it's not going to come from any of these external situations. And I think the love that we're kind of looking for has to get generated on the inside. Well, you know, you, you, you talk about in the book all these external metrics to success. Uh, and, and particularly now because of, you know, social media and, Technology. There's so many different ways to measure success, but uh, you know, you mentioned uh, having a certain number of followers. Maybe it's having a certain number of readers of the book, or having a certain number of downloads on a YouTube video, or a certain number of uh, you know positive comments from total strangers, or being on a certain podcast or show, or having a certain person comment, or for for many people, having a certain job title, having a certain amount of money in the bank, uh, living in a certain size house or whatever, all those things do give you these, give anybody these dopamine hits. It creates kind yeah. of these spurts of happiness. How do you, um, you know, that's addictive. Like it's this, you know, dopamine's the same neurochemical that's triggered when you take cocaine. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you kind of wean yourself off that addiction? You can't, and, and I, I saw in the book how you kind of put all your social media apps on an older phone that's harder yeah. to use. And, you know, that's, that's almost like your own form of like social media rehab. But in just in general, how do you, how do you kind of check yourself when you feel there's some external metric that you is making you unhappy because you're not achieving it? Um, I, I think definitely, and just kind of going back to even what we we're saying in the investment conversation about acknowledging that you don't know shit or acknowledging that you're not bigger than this addiction. Like as, as you said, social media is extremely addictive. Self-pity is extremely addictive. Um, and they are addictive for a reason. And none of us are, are going to be uh, exempt from that. 
Um, so I look at social media as potato chips. It's, I can go a year without eating potato chips, but if I put a potato chip in my mouth right now after a year, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna take me right back, and I can fall, I can fall off the wagon again. So for me, addressing uh, addiction, a lot of it, a lot of the impact has uh, happened um, through some of my friends who have conquered much more intense addictions. Uh, one of my best friends had a drinking problem. Um, for about three, four years, he saw a cognitive behavioral therapist. And from there, what I noticed about him is he lives in Berlin and he made environmental changes. You know, there's no TV in his house. There's, there's, uh, there's, there aren't too many stimulants. He quit, he quit, not only did he quit drinking, he, he changed the friends he spends his time around because friends can drink socially and that can, every single day you're, you're fighting this battle. And it's kind of like being in the office and, if you're in the office and there's a bowl of candy in the middle of the table, you're more likely to start picking at the bowl than if it's hidden away in the corner. So I think there's acknowledging that, hey, I'm not strong enough to just do this mm -hmm. on my own. Um, I do need to create a bond with something. So I think we have to figure out things that we can create bonds with that are stronger, that do last longer. I mean, dopamine, uh, you know, is that that short high, but the serotonin, which is... You know, so dopamine is pleasure, serotonin is happiness, uh, and focusing on things that can give us serotonin, which again, it's a lot more of a delayed reaction. So me writing a book should feel, you know, which is a, a year and a half project, um, being okay with the fact that it's going to feel amazing once I hold the physical book in my hand, but not promising myself that it's going to give me a happy, a happy ever after. It's going to feel good today. And then tomorrow I'll be on to the next thing. And I think having that relationship with reality, knowing that, and just kind of, for me, I've kind of set, set a life of, all right, let's, let's pick a name, let's hit it, let's not get too overly invested in what it's going to feel like to hit that goal, and let's move on to the next. And, and let's, continually do, let's continue to do that, chase our passions, uh, you know, let ourselves be guided by our obsessions, and, and, and use out our time and... If it's important to add value to the world, let's add value to the world. And I think each individual has to kind of determine that. So for me, it's knowing that, hey, instead of doing this delayed, good things happen when we delay the gratification. So for many people, it's just, it's, there's so many of these mechanisms that make it easier to avoid doing the long-term stuff that we can just hop on our phones or we can, we can take an easier route, not realizing that the more we do it, the more numb we are to it, just like taking cocaine, just like eating potato chips, anything that's addictive, you know, whatever you needed to get high the first time, you're going to need more the second time. And, and you, it's going to be, it's going to snowball. I, I, like, I like the idea of changing your environment just the way, yeah. um, rather than saying, no, I'm not going to look at my social media, mm -mm. just removing it from the phone. It's like when you mentioned the potato chips, uh, I have a strategy about that, which is I will never go to a grocery store. Because that's really... That's where the battle's I, if, at, yeah. If I go to the grocery store, I'm buying potato chips. Yes. But if I order out from a restaurant or eat at a restaurant or, let's say, have a home-cooked meal, you, you can't go to a restaurant and get a bag of Doritos for dessert. Yeah. Like, they just don't have it. So you don't have access anymore to these kind of snacks that are just, you know, horrible for you. Yeah, and it can't... Because you can't simply rely on discipline. Discipline requires energy and... 
if it's late at night and you just heard some bad news or you had a long day, then, you know, your willpower will have been depleted. And if you got a cupboard full of junk food, you know, it's, it's easily accessible and it's there. So it's, it's the same thing. So, you know, not having social media on my phone, you know, if I'm sitting on the subway, I'm still looking at the phone. I still catch myself looking at the phone. But I was like, okay, well, we're better off than we were yesterday. Now we're just reading clickbait news on Google. But we're not... We're not scrolling through Instagram anymore and, and comparing ourselves to the people we see on there. And we're not reading arguments on Twitter anymore about Trump or something. You know, we're we're we're, we're getting a little bit better. And then next is going to be taking that off. And uh, a, f- a friend of mine, Neil, Neil Patricia, who's a, who's a, a very yeah, talented, great guy, great guy uh, he also showed me how to take the color off the phone. So he just triple clicks his phone, the power button three times, and he set it to make the phone black and white. So he's he's taking it there. He's like, you know, let's let's reduce the stimulation even mm-hmm. more. And I think it's it's that. And just just recently, I was uh, uh, I was just sitting in the room for Charlemagne's Brilliant Idiots podcast, and he interviewed Cardi B's best friend, and she talked about how she stopped caring about social media when she was in jail, not realizing that it was because she didn't have a phone. But that changed her relationship with what was happening because she was like, I have to focus on what's going on in here. I can't focus on what people are saying about me on the outside. But the idea was the same. It was imp- change your environment. My friend who had the drinking issue, he, he, he moved to Berlin. He, he left all the, the chat groups with our friends. He, uh, and he told me, you know, he's Jamaican. He goes, I'm a young black man who doesn't need a fix. And he said, it's because of the life I designed. He wakes up early in the morning, works out on the jungle gym, rides his bike to work. He, he has a very healthy relationship with himself. He knows he has energy that needs to get spent, so he spends it working out. Uh, he hangs around with people that don't make those lifestyle decisions that he doesn't want to make. And, um, you know, now he's been sober for about five years, and I think it's been amazing. And within that, while he was sober, he went through a divorce. He got kicked out of his place. He had to sleep on couches for a year. He was tested, and, and, and he didn't fall off the wagon. I thought it was super interesting. And he found, he found that through going to Portugal in the summer and working on a migrant farm. So, But what's interesting there is, you, let's say he's going through a, a, a divorce that's making him sad, or, uh, uh, you know, or he's in a situation where there's alcohol around. Thinking won't help you out of your problem. So if he tries to rationalize, well, this is why I shouldn't be upset about this divorce, that won't work. If you're just standing and thinking, you know, the fight or flight is still being triggered inside of you, but now you're just standing and thinking about it instead of fighting or flighting. So so you have to like, and this is kind of a a common theme I find, you you have to do things and take action in order to actually accomplish anything. Yeah. You Mo- can't like movement think your is way medicine. To- right. Yeah. And so for him, he went to Portugal. And again, it's not about running from your problems. It's about doing new things or doing something you love doing as opposed to running from something. Yeah. I think going into the unknown, putting yourselves in uncomfortable situations uh, voluntarily. I think, you know, I think a lot of us avoid uncomfortable situations, not realizing that, you know, it's like that, that ghost and I think it's the, the the Super Nintendo version of Super Mario where the ghost is just following you and you turn around, look at it, it stops moving. And then when you turn back around, it keeps following you again. That's all our uncomfortable moments. And either it's going to catch us or we're going to catch it. And I think if we, if we voluntarily have, uh, if we voluntarily confront these things, like he put himself, he's working with migrants and farms doing physical labor. Um, not because he has to, 
for any other reason. He's he's doing this to have a new experience, um, and putting himself in these uncomfortable situations makes him evolve and grow. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do. But I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. So let, let's say, let's take a situation that, that we all go through, which is, let's say you have a, a boss or a colleague at work where you work and you have to show up every day. So it's a little harder to change your environment immediately. Maybe mm-hmm. in the long run, you could switch jobs, but yeah. maybe you don't want to. Yeah. And you have a colleague or a boss and it's just not going to work. That relationship is just not going to work. You're not going to repair it for whatever reason that happens all the time. What would, what would your advice be? I think in general, you know, the, I think the first question I always ask is, what is in our control? You know, I think we live a life of some things are in our control, way more things are not. But focusing on what's in our control and maybe creating an action plan around the things that are in our control, whether it's how often we have to see them, um, maybe in, asking them for a conversation and, and, and sitting down and maybe setting something up with them, being like, look, this is what the issues are. Um, we got to see each other every day. What do you think we can do to make th- things better? Um, and going through that list of just everything that isn't within our control. And then once we, we run out of that, I, I feel like going through that list, things will get better. And if they still don't, then we're going to have to make some more uncomfortable decisions, whether it's leaving the job uh, to protect our peace or, or making some other sort of adjustment. You know, the, the other thing I want to kind of unpack from what you just said is going back to the social media stuff. It's an interesting thing how everybody is addicted to, they even think it's an accomplishment like, oh, I got my first 1,000 Twitter followers or my first 1,000 Instagram followers or this video got, you know, a million downloads. And the one thing when you when you actually think about it, so I'm going to, I am going to think myself out of the social media addiction yeah. for a second. <laughs> the one thing I, I kind of realized, social media is sort of worthless in the sense that very few people have actually become successful just because of social media. Like I could probably, okay, I could probably count it on a couple dozen fingers, but not millions. It's not like, it's not like I'm going to be great at social media and that's my career. It's, you have to kind of do other things. And like the, you, you bring up the rock as an example. Yes. He has been great how he's managed his social media. He's the biggest social media presence on the planet, but he started off by being, you know, first a superman and then a super actor and he accomplished things in the outside world not the digital world and then he was you know 
he built up on social media. It didn't kind of come the other way around. It didn't like it wasn't like first The Rock got 50 million social media followers yeah. and then he became this like actor and wrestler or whatever or bodybuilder whatever he did. I don't even know what he did before acting. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot, a lot to be said about the, the the democratization of what social media allowed in terms of um reducing the necessity of gatekeepers if you are a creative. And, and, That's very true. Yeah, and I think it, it's great. And again, what the invention of the ship was the invention of the shipwreck. So, you know, for people with a great work ethic, for people with a lot of creativity, with people who had the mindset of, uh, I'm going to put out my, my work and I'm going to create a community around this work instead of trying to fit into a certain box of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, I think it's been amazing. I think the internet's been amazing for uh, creating content that doesn't require bandwidth. You know, if you had a late night TV show, this conversation would be six minutes, right? Right. Now we can talk as long or as short as we want. So, and more people will listen to it than yeah. most of the late night talk shows. That's exactly. the other interesting thing. Yeah. But uh, I think that's because we're focused on do you know doing a good job. And, you know, there was a lot of preparation, yeah. you know, for each podcast. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to post a tweet and then become famous. <laughs> or yeah. or and in, here's an Instagram photo. photo. It's going to go viral. Like everyone says, well, my, my photo went viral. It doesn't mean anything it won't yeah. change your your impact your your the value you give to the world like again it's that sort of uh spoken wheel approach where you have a message okay so you you humble the poet you do your spoken word poetry your music you write books uh you might do other kinds of youtube videos or you might go on other people's podcasts or shows but it's not like you know one manifestation of it going viral is what makes you a success. It's what's at the core that you yeah. believe in. And then you find multiple ways, hopefully without gatekeepers, to express it. And that's how you succeed. Not because you've you've dominated search engine optimization and you figure out figured out the the Instagram algorithm and, and so on. Yeah. And and for me, that came from that actually came from an agent, uh, a digital agent who actually said to me, look. Stop comparing yourself to all these, especially because I have a lot of friends in the YouTube space or a lot of, and a lot of friends in, you know, um, doing whatever's trending. You know, they, they find whatever's trending, the trending topic, and they create around that. And what she said to me was, don't stop paying attention to them. And because one thing, irrespective of technology, is there will always be a demand for good ideas. So just create good ideas. And you know that that is what's going to sustain you, and don't worry about your release strategy. Don't worry about your schedule. Don't worry about that. Just make sure you're working and you're coming up with great ideas because people will always need those. And do you, so so, but that that's a great point. And you cover this in this chapter a little bit where you meet Pharrell Williams, you know the yeah, Pharrell, rapper, yeah. the musician on a on a bus. Yeah, and you you deal with an issue that's on the top of your mind and he very you're asking a bunch of questions and he very insightfully says to you well, what's your real question here so you were asking him about the song happy and which is such a phenomenal song and how he deals with it months or years or whatever afterwards how does he deal with the fact that he hasn't come up with something like happy again and that's what his audience really likes so does he try to, to and he stops you and he says well what's really on your mind and did you feel at that moment like the, the thing you were really asking about, you were sort of a prisoner of what your quote-unquote fans, these strangers on the internet who liked your previous stuff, were they holding you a prisoner 
to your previous content, wanting you to do more music instead of writing a book, for instance, and you're trying to figure out how to break free from that prison? Um, I think I think it was more of a mental prison. I think, you know, I interact with thousands of people a day, but if one person says something like, well, what have you done for me lately? Or I haven't liked anything you've done since you released that song five years ago. You know, that stuff kind of seems to stick a lot yes. more than the 99 other positive comments that you had. And so what I think at that point, what I was going through was um, probably a month before that happened, I I went to a, a lunch with a bunch of friends and there was an NFL player there who uh, had just won a ring with the Denver Broncos and he just got traded to a different team. And I was just like, congratulations. He's like, man, it's, it's what have you done for me lately? And if I haven't done nothing for them this Sunday, because I'm out of a job. And, and kind of putting that in my head, like it gets really cutthroat where if you're not offering value to people or your gatekeepers or your audience immediately, what's going to happen? And and the, the question with asking with Pharrell was like the success of Happy, like that's a once in a lifetime level of success. That's a massive, you know, there's only maybe a dozen songs that hit that stratosphere in probably the last decade. And kind of asking him, well, what did, how do you deal with knowing that you may not, you may potentially have a lot of success, but nothing may hit that. Like that's Harry Potter level success. And him just kind of saying, well, I'm not the reason it's successful. I, I was a piece of the equation or I was a piece of the puzzle or, and, and he equated it to a, a pearl saying, you know, the temperature of the water, the location of the water, the type of oyster, the time of year, uh, the, the, the depth of the water, all of these impact the kind of pearl that you have. He's like, happy was the pearl and I was just one factor in making it the pearl that it was. He goes, I don't own it. I don't take ownership of it. I'm just going to focus on being a factor again. And as I continued asking questions, he's like, well, what, what are you really dealing with? Like, why are you asking me all of this? And I thought, and that really caught me off guard because I think he really saw the sincerity. I wasn't talking to him for the sake of talking to him. And I think feeling all this pressure, especially watching other people have a win while I was still in my process. You know, if you're writing a book, it takes a year and a half to write a book. So you're watching other people publish their books. So you're watching other people win awards. You're watching other people have these moments or make great announcements. And you're like, oh, I haven't done anything in six months. People are going to forget about me. I'm obsolete. And, you know, these are just thoughts in your brain, you know, because whereas I'm a huge fan of Frank Ocean, he can go two more years without releasing music. I'll be excited for the day he drops it. Um, or, you know, uh, you know, certain actors drop movies every five, six years. It's, it's not that big of a deal. And I think it was all in my head, but especially hanging out with certain people uh, in the digital space, which were like, hey, you got to give them something every week. You got to give them something every, every twice a week. It's the almighty algorithm is going to punish you if you don't. And having to be okay with like, all right, yeah, you know, the almighty algorithm might. It might say this channel isn't this active enough. We're not going to make sure, we're going to make sure that not too many people see it because this channel's not giving us the watch time that we want. And being okay with that and knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm not on this, I can't live off the validation, the external validation. That's just another dopamine drop. That's just, and... Seeing, you know, when when the when the YouTube a algorithm changed, then people who were used to getting one million views a day started getting eight hundred thousand views a day, and watching him just watching them just descend into depression, and being like, "This is so strange." You get more views on one video than I would get in a year, and and that's a cause of depression for you. And hearing people talk about this, J Cole talked about this. J Cole talked about this in one of his second album, saying, "I know, you know, I have." 
I think he talked about having $500,000 to his name and then being in a room and finding out that Beyonce just spent that much on a car. And then being in another room being like, oh, I'm, about, I'm around a bunch of men who'd probably kill themselves if they had my net worth, you know, because that would be rock bottom for them. And just realizing it was always perception and, and just kind of paying attention to that and hearing 50 Cent say that. Hearing 50 Cent, you know, the interviewer asking him, saying, well, you made $80 million off one deal. Why don't you just retire? And, and him saying, my accomplishments are cute in the circles I'm in. You know, and realizing that there's always going to be somebody that can one-up your accomplishments. And are we going to play this goal of climbing these ladders without a top and climbing these mountains without a peak? So I think for me, that Pharrell conversation, uh, it ended with him saying, listen, man, the sun will shine on you differently. And just feeling my shoulders drop and really having this moment of, wow, that's what I needed to hear. And I have no idea how this cosmic being even figured that out let alone even allowed me to pick his brain for the last hour on this bus. I guess because the reality is he probably did deal with that after Happy. Yeah. <laughs> and that was probably his conclusion that as he keeps just focusing on doing good work, yeah. he's going to, you know, every kind of, I always think about this, like every musical, like great, famous musical band, rapper, musician, rock star, whatever, they sort of have like their three to six year period of, you know, godlike music and then that's it for the next 30 years they just yeah. tore on those their white hot moment yeah. Yeah. yeah and i wonder if they all feel bad for like their 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 fans are just calling out in the audience play yeah. hey jude yeah. you know or do whatever and then yeah. and they're like no i've done other songs since then. yeah <laughs> no no you haven't yeah. and uh like boys to men or something yeah, yeah or any yeah any any of them or you know bob bob dylan talks about this in his memoirs that when he's creating the music that's authentic to him often his older fans don't like it or or new fans will never like it yeah. and so uh uh but you just have to do what's you know what you want to do and and i guess the the problem is sort of finding you know switching your source of uh happiness or achievement or whatever you want to call it to how close you are to getting to your vision as opposed to a bunch of strangers vision the the, the people tweeting out like no uh, you know humble do this again or why haven't you done this more yeah. and cuz cuz i'll get that every single day there will not be a day that goes by where i don't get like oh you used to be this or you used to do this and now you're blah 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 we hate you yeah and it's it's painful you have to figure out you know maybe it's like not going to the grocery store like not looking at it at all or or again maybe shifting goals as to what's important uh you know i think i'm still trying to figure that out myself as well yeah i think i think for me as well it's been kind of really reminding myself of why I started and not why I started trying to be a full-time artist, why I even made anything creative in the beginning. And it was, you know, my first lyrics video took me like 10 days to make on Windows Movie Maker. And I had, this was before YouTube and there was no, no goal to share it. I just wanted to, to I made this rap song. I rapped over Jay-Z's Minority Report and I just wanted to see it come to life. And the reward was the work. And just a few days ago, I had a meeting with a, a CEO of a company. I'm I'm, I'm going to help him with some speech writing, and just trying to get to know him. So he's he's a he's a he's a big actuary in the insurance a agency, and he's doing a speech for a bunch of actuaries. And um, he, in his off time, he builds action figures, and each action figure that he's built uh, has been over a hundred hours of labor, and he's not selling them. 
He he's not posting them. He's not sharing them. He's happy creating them, and he's happy finding people that he can employ to support this. So he's finding people around the world that have artistic skills that would have never gotten paid from them, and he's commissioning them to help him build these action figures. And he's been doing it for 20 years, and he's in his 50s. So this was something he discovered in his late 30s. And the labor is the reward. That's that that's such a great anecdote because I feel like that's sort of pure joy instead of instead of thinking, okay, today I have to sit down and write and what is it, you know, my readers want to read. Yes. And and even if there's like one drop of that that spills into what I write, it really I can just feel it. It doesn't yeah. feel like the writing's good. It yeah. feels stained. And but you know, it's a hard thing to deal with. Like I know when I've written stories or or posts or even books about let's say losing all my money and then bouncing back, that's what people have responded to the most. But I can't I I can't write 3000 blog posts about that. Mm. And you know, how do you how do you continue continually reinvent what you write about and what's important to you? I think I think I'm hoping we all suffer through that. I know I suffer yeah. through that and I don't quite know the full answer other than that when I do write something that's pure to me now, I feel good and I and I don't care at all how many people like it or share it or whatever. Yeah, I, and I think it's also like, I think I took from uh, Donald Glover, Childish Gambino, where he just ends, he just ends things. Like he had a stand-up career and he just stopped. You know, he's like, that chapter is done. And then, you know, I think he's slowly putting an end to Childish Gambino, the rapper. And he's just like, I start things and then I, li I like to end things instead of having them end for me. And my favorite rapper is Andre 3000, who's probably the only rapper to ever actually retire, you know, and, and not wait till he fell off on the wayside, you know. Why do they stop, though? Do they stop to because they feel they did their thing there and they start to have other interests? Or do you think it's in part because to avoid being held prisoner by the needs of the, you know, mental prison by the needs of the fans? Or why do you think they, they stop? I think the combination of many things. I know for him, just because I've, I've read on him extensively, I think, you know, his his personal philosophy is hip-hop is for the youth and he needs to make space for, for the youth to come out. Um, I think he also realized that um, he had uh, social anxiety and something that he didn't know what that was growing up. So he just didn't want to perform anymore. He didn't want to be around people. He wanted to stop going to the parties and the award shows and never knew why. He just thought something was wrong with him. And then uh, as he got a little bit older, saw a therapist and got diagnosed. Um, I think it was also probably realizing that, hey, you know, at what point do you want to, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of like, do you want to, like number 23, Michael Jordan, you want to leave at the top or do you want to slowly wither away and, 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 and destroy your legacy accordingly? So I think it's, I think it's probably a combination of a lot of things. And I think about that for myself in terms of writing, recording music, what I want to do when I'm 70, what I want to do when I'm 60. Will it be cool to be on stage still performing? Um, but I think wanting to live on our own terms and, and create that accordingly. And, uh, you know, that's why there's a section of the book called, you know, folk, you know, enjoy the rainbow. There is no pot of gold. You know, it's got, we have to enjoy what we're doing now. And if it doesn't feel good, because at the end of the day, you can release, you know, on your newsletter, you can release, uh, you, you can send out a newsletter every day and that can be not considered enough. Or you can release it once a week and that's not enough. Or you can release it three times a day. You know, there's no limit because especially the nature of social media and the nature of content 
consumption is that, you know, more and more and more and more. And we all have to set our own standard for that. And I think it's really good for people who want to put out more instead of people who feel like they need to put out more. If people want to put out more, by all means do so. Um, but just realize that there's never, a, there's, I don't think there is a critical mass. I think the more you put out, the, you know, there could be benefit, there's going to be pros and cons to it. And each of us has to go inside and determine how much we want to put out. But sometimes, sometimes output is a, you know, huge output is a strategy. Yeah. So take your friend Lily Singh, yeah. who's this mega YouTube star. She, from, from the beginning to now, she produced so much content yeah. that it kind of became inevitable that some things would go viral and kind of establish her presence as this YouTube star. And now she's going to be a late night TV star and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, and she's a really interesting point because she, I guess, officially would be considered the second generation of YouTubers. And the first generation would have been like the Epic Meal Times, the, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think of some of the other ones. Um, who would just Lonely Island. Andy Samberg was the first video with 100 million views. Yeah, Lonely Island. And again, he wasn't dropping a video even once a week. He just dropped them whenever they were ready. Yeah. Um, and I think um, what happened was when she came up, she came up and, and she saw this world of YouTubers and they were millionaires dropping one video a week. And all she did was drop two videos a week. And I don't think any of her videos actually went viral. I think that it really was just they slowly scaffolded on top of each other and just continued to grow. And the number of videos she put out over five years, it, it became inevitable um, with her consistency. But then it got to a point where you started getting these, you know, like the like uh, Logan Paul and Jake Paul, where these guys were releasing two videos a day plus a live stream. And then you started to see like, hey, it's just you know, it's, it's going to keep moving and wanting more and more and more and more and more. And that's kind of the nature of everything where just things start scaling and the output becomes more. And she had to make a decision as well, which was, you know, what is this going to do to my mental health? And a lot of YouTubers were having that issue because um, YouTube made a, a big change in their culture, which was, you know, if, for example, right now, if people like this podcast and you know, it would encourage them to, in the past, it would encourage them to watch more stuff from you, the creator, subscribe to you and get more of your content. Now, I think YouTube realized for, for their watch time, which is their priority, they're going to focus more on the content of the interview and the topic. So if we talk heavily about heartbreak or finances, the next video that I recommend is going to be about heartbreak or finances, whether you made it or not. And then that had YouTubers chasing the topics, trying to figure out what's the new topic that I have to talk about. Uh, versus people creating a relationship with the creator. It became more about the content than the creator. And I think uh, folks like Lily kind of realized that this is, this is a, you know, you're chasing your tail. Like, this is a never-ending battle that's just going to make you wither and die. And um, luckily, she had that approach that you said, you know, where she created her wheel with multiple spokes. So even when things started to take a downturn in the YouTube world, it didn't impact her bottom line. It didn't impact anything other than her just not being used to winning. Yeah, because I think I think it's almost like you have to diversify your happiness or diversify mm. the the sectors of life that you want to that that you enjoy things from. So you know, for the person listening to this who's driving to their cubicle job at Procter and Gamble, it's not about become you know becoming a YouTube star. It's about 
finding multiple things that you enjoy, like like the actuary who creates these action figures for the pure love of it. That's that's solid gold, as yes. opposed to chasing. Oh, you know, Prince Andrew is trending. <laughs> Let's do a YouTube video on it. Yes, like that's not pure joy. <laughs> that that's yeah. That's that's just chasing another fix. You're you're just chasing another fix temporarily, and it's going to be hit or miss. And I think also, and and even I encourage a, a lot of people. Um, you know, it's not about having a full time job versus being a full time artist. Sometimes you can reappropriate your nine to five to be a part of your art. So if you're working in a cubicle and that's what allows you to go home and build model ships in the little bottles or paint pictures of apples or, you know, do ballet class and be able to pay for it or, or do something else, then it becomes a part of the process. And I think that's, that's the great part. And, and, and that book, uh, Steal Like an Artist, it, even, it encourages all artists to have another art that they do that they don't share with the world. Yeah, I, I love that. So Austin Kleon wrote that book. Yeah. You can check out my podcast with him on that book, but it's an excellent book. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about the chapter about um, chasing the, the rainbow, you know, there's always that saying, uh, focus on the journey, not the outcome. But I think you take it one step further where a lot of people focus on the journey, but the journey itself is also hard and it might not be what you want. Like when I was you know, trying to build a big hedge fund. My goal, of course, was to build a big hedge fund and make a lot of money, but that was the wrong goal kind of led to the wrong process, led to the wrong journey, mm -hmm. and I wasn't having fun. And you kind of add this extra dimension, which is not only enjoy the process, but uh, make, or not, or not only focus on the process, but make sure it's, it's fun. And that's kind of gives you the big clue that this is something you should pursue or you should hit the accelerator on. And yeah. I, and I, I think I often lose that. I, I think we all, we all do. And, um, you know, especially when I'm in Hollywood and, you know, you have small talk with people, how are you doing? How are things going? And what I realized is when I'd ask people, uh, are you having fun? They'd always hesitate and they'd always think about it. And then you get like a, yeah, sometimes. And, you know, and, and you start to realize that, you know, we all lose sight of that. Like as kids, that's all we chased was fun. We just wanted to do things that were fun and we don't have to abandon that. And I've met so many people who have had, who have such great ability to manifest whatever reality they want, but they don't take the time to think about, is this the reality I actually need? And I see people with vision boards and they're like, I want a Lambo, I want a Rolex, I want what have you. And they get it all. And they were successful in making it happen, but they were completely inaccurate in terms of what they thought it was going to make them feel, you know? Um, so I think for me, that really helped me a lot, especially when I was in my struggling times because I, I initially looked at these people with a lot of resentment and being like, how, how are you making 100 grand a month and you're miserable? Like, I'm broke. I would, let's trade lives, you, you ungrateful piece of crap. And then realizing like, no, it's because, you know, this is all they knew. They thought this is how they were going to find value or make up for a shitty childhood or, or finally get that chip off their shoulder. And once they get it, it didn't. And they, they, their only assumption was, oh, maybe it wasn't enough. They didn't change direction. They just kind of doubled down on it. Like, oh, I didn't hit the top of the mountain. Let me just keep climbing. And I think for me, it was like, no, if you're not having fun climbing the mountain, it doesn't matter wh where it takes you. And uh, taking that perspective and, and also being realistic and being like everybody, every single person has a part of their job that's just going to suck. Like you're just going to be eating spoons full of shit 
in in that part of your life, and and, and that's just reality. And the the more the more you do, the more things are gonna suck. Yeah. So if you if your if your goal in life is to, for instance, have kids, kids are great, but kids also are horrible. <laughs> they suck. <laughs> and and or if your goal in life is to be the CEO of a company. That's that could also be the worst nightmare you've ever had in your life, yeah. like being the CEO of a company. Completely. And and uh, uh, you know, I wanted to to focus on some of these chapters towards the end because this is the, again you you mentioned in the book how you knew your writing was starting to hit a stride. I'm paraphrasing when when people come up to you and said, "I really needed to read this right now." Thank you. And I I've gotten that a lot as well, and it's a it's a good feeling, but. I can say that to you. Some of these things you wrote, I really needed to read right now. Like you have this chapter, not everyone we lose is a loss. Yeah. And so if like, if like, let's say someone's close to you and then suddenly for whatever reason, they have their reasons, they treat you horribly. They, they go off, they go away. They, uh, who knows? There's a range from they ignore you to they betray you to they hate you, whatever. Um, it's almost a cliche to say, well, they weren't really good friends then to begin with, but it's deeper than that because you're still hurt. Yeah. So like, how do you, how do you kind of bridge that gap? And it seems like this happened to you, you know, many, not many, many, many times, many, but like several times. Several times. It happened to me several times. I think allow yourself to feel hurt. Allow yourself to kind of be, you know, I think in, in that grieve. story. Yeah, to grieve and just be like, wow, like I thought that person liked me. You know, I thought we had a great relationship and then, you know, be okay with asking those questions. Did I do something wrong? And even if you did something wrong, like, you know, that's life. Stuff happens. And oftentimes you don't. I think, you know, most people who criticize us are telling us their stories, not ours. And it's usually a reflection of that. And I catch myself when I'm internally criticizing people or, or being petty or jealous. It's I'm telling my story. And, it, and it's a reflection of my insecurities more so than other people's. So again, you're you're thinking that and you're rationally correct, but the emotions are separate from the thoughts. Like... And as we discussed about your friend who's in Berlin, you also have to do something. You have to kind of yeah. change some aspect of your environment. Like, what what do you do? I think for me, my go-to kind of, uh, you know, cortisol shot in the butt when I'm feeling my worst is probably just doubling down on service. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. That's yes. great. You know, like the, I, the last time I felt super horrible and, and for myself, I... Uh, I answered an email from a stranger who asked me to be their mentor. And I'm just like, all right, cool. I'm going to give you two hours a month. Let's and set up the How's calls. that working out? I, I helped them for a couple of months, and then they stopped calling. So I don't know if... Uh, I think they I think they, they were looking to cut some corners. And I think I, I, I showed them that you can't... There, there's no escalator. There's no stairs. There's not even a, a slope to the top. You just have to cl claw and climb. I find, that, I find that true... Like, I get a, a lot of those emails, and I find that true mentorship happens organically yeah. and then you know both the mentee and the mentor yeah um i i, I we have to, i know i want to respect your time i know we have to uh wrap soon um just checking my notes oh you, you know actually just, i'm just curious about and, and and so first i just want to say by the way things no one else can teach us every single chapter in this book was me saying i really needed to read this right now and that's me after reading hundreds of self-help books and writing my own books and going through my own experiences and writing about them. Sometimes it's good to be reminded of things. Sometimes I get new things. Like, I, again, I like the way you added to, it, it. you know, focus on the process, not the outcome, but also focus on something 
it needs to be fun. You know, like yeah. your friend, like the actuary who who I really admire that the who who he's doing the action figures and he just doesn't care. Like yeah. I love it when I'm doing something that fuels me and I just don't care about the outcome. And I think especially when it involves a lot of labor, you're just like you're 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 putting all this work and and, and they and they love for it. And I'm 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 meeting so many people do that and you find a lot of inspiration from that. And I mean and and again, and you just use the word self-help book and I feel like it's become my responsibility every time somebody uses that word is I there, there isn't an inch of me that claims to be a self-help guru. Uh, I I I, agree I know with that. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't for the for the audience. It's just the, I I I'm I'm really good with putting words together cuz I write a lot and uh, I'm able to to dissect my my experiences and I'm hoping that it adds value to people's lives, but uh you will definitely see me outside walking into walls looking down at my phone almost getting hit by cars and, and making every other honest mistake that all of the humans make and uh i'll just find a way to to turn that into a neat instagram caption after yeah and i i i totally agree like i don't I, whenever my books in a bookstore it usually is in the self-help category yeah. i'm uh, i always say i should be in the self-helpless category <laughs> because it's the exact opposite but it is a matter of telling stories and the lessons you've learned, and then often people relate to that, and it helps them. Yeah. Um. I also like this this one chapter. Life isn't black and white. L life isn't black and white. There's plenty of gray in between. And I think we're very used to thinking something is either good or bad. Yeah. And it's important to look at the nuances and and the grays in in that. Yeah. Every you know everything is how we look at it, and it's you know I always kind of look at th thinking things in terms of like you know instead of saying good or bad, like think hot and cold. You know, when does something stop being cold and start being hot? You know, whether we're looking at it mm. from a measuring the temperature of it or just feeling it under our hands. And I think when we stop, you know, the other probably, you know, if the 100,000 foot idea is that, you know, we can create a silver lining in anything in our lives if we change our attitudes and our perspectives, probably the 75,000 foot idea is judge less, understand more and realize that to understand requires more work and it's a little exhausting and to judge is really easy and we we have so many judgments that have been placed upon us so we're wearing layers of other people's judgments yeah it's so like a prison it's like a prison so it's really easy for us to continue that cycle and uh, you know I, I, had, I had a buddy messaging me while we we're on the train talking about you know moving out of his house and he's a, a successful uh, executive and he makes more than enough money but he just feels guilt for leaving his parents he's just like i'm I'm the only son i don't want to do any of this i feel guilty i don't know what other people are going to say if i leave the house especially in the punjabi community it's the opposite they don't want their kids to ever leave hmm. they just want them to build a house within the house and 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 me saying hey you know that guilt was taught to us that guilt is layered upon us that's why you have to get out that's why you have to be on your own because that's going to be the first step to shedding this guilt. But I also, I also like your advice you said to me earlier, which is find for him find ways to double down on service, mm -hmm. maybe even in with his family or his community, and that might be a way to kind of bridge, you know, his leaving his his parents' house and so on. Completely, and I think, and and, and going back to service, I think I found that from myself. It's the same. You know, we want a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, a million followers. Because we all, as humans, have this need to feel significant. Um, and it's okay that we need to feel significant. There's just a million ways we can go about it. And I feel like... For, for anybody. For anybody. It doesn't we, matter who you are. Yeah, you don't we, have to be a YouTube star. You don't have to, yeah. You can need to feel significant, and you can find that significant through being a parent. 
You can find that significant through uh, giving to charity. You can find that significant through, you know, showing off your body and getting likes on Instagram. You can have that significance through making money, driving, uh, you know, a lime green Lamborghini down the street. Any way you want to find that significance, we all have that itch to scratch. I feel like some are more sustainable than others. And I found for me, service has been uh, probably the most healthy and sustainable way of doing that. And, and, and Sick Heritage is called Seva. And it ranges from everything from the big stuff to, you know, contributing to nonprofits or, or getting your hands dirty and, and spending time in the soup kitchen or, 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 or Habitat for Humanity to the smallest things of cleansing your ego by going to temple and cleaning people's shoes. So on on that, uh, Jay, do we is it are we do we have are we having wrapped because someone's coming? Oh, someone's coming. Ah, are they knocking on the door? Uh, I gotta knock in two minutes. Okay, well we got two minutes then. We got. Two. Uh, but I but I will advertise again the book, or I'll say the name of the book once more time. Things no one else can teach us. I love the stories. I love the writing. I love the lessons you learned, humble. Uh, that I can see how it applies to my own life. But now I have a I have a kind of a dumb question. Uh, if I were to take three steps, how can I be a rapper? <laughs> I kind I've I've loved rap since for past thirty eight years. I wanna yeah. I wanna. Well, you're a, a hip hop head. I, yeah. I mean, you're you're part of the history. You're, you're the reason we know about Wu Tang. So I think we're gonna. Give so you I made that all credit. their websites. You made, and that's important. I think yeah. that's that's super important. I mean, if, if you think about it, Childish Gambino named himself off a Wu Tang rap generating uh, website. Which is probably inspired oh, by some work that. that you did. Yeah, he just Wu Tang has a rap rap name generator. Huh, that's and, funny, uh, and I'm sure that that was inspired some way through your work. Um, I think. So, I mean, this is probably just to be a writer in general is recognize that you have a story and your story matters. Everybody's stories matter. Um, this is how our species has grown by people sharing their stories. Um, Hip hop is probably just the most accessible way to do it. So I think first off is recognize your story matters. Um, and then share your story. I think it's sharing your story um, in any way, shape, or form. Like there, there are certain rappers. There's a rapper out now named Blueface where he is not on beat and he doesn't rhyme. So he's literally just talking fast with music in the background. And I'm not even sure if he's recording it while the music's playing. So Blueface. Yeah. Oh, gonna, I don't. I've never heard of him. I'm gonna check he's, it out. He's a, he's a, he's a young kid. He's a new rapper. And again, he's 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 probably benefiting from the SoundCloud social media clout chasing generation. I don't know what his longevity is going to be in the game, but there's a it's a style of rap that I feel will allow people who don't feel like they have any rhythm or don't feel like they can count beats that they'll appreciate because he's literally just just talking and then there's music and it's just happening. Um, I think it's an Things are cliche for a reason, um, but the problem is they become so cliche they lose their meaning. But you know, I think the value of the wisdom is still there. Uh, being our authentic selves is probably the most sustainable way to continually be creative. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, we're in, we're in a comedy, we're in a, we're in a place of comedy, and I'm a massive fan of George Carlin, and you know, he has some of the most. I think he's one of the most. He has the largest output. And, you know, over its spanning decades of any comedian, you know. And, and I would say both George Carlin and Richard Pryor, basically at the same time, whether it was in the, I think it was in the early 70s or maybe late 60s, I forget, where they both, instead of just going up on stage and telling like standard jokes, they both went into their very unique voices. They both went yeah. from jokester 
to authentic, and that's when their comedy really started to to shine. It really did, and I think now, especially with the internet, it allows you to create your create your audience the way you want to create it. So I think you know every every single rapper's uh, timeline is going to be when they started. They sounded like their favorite rapper, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then they slowly found their voice from that. I know my early stuff. I have three different voices and. And uh, you know, I cringe when I hear it now. And I just, I just literally took lines from my favorite rappers and put those as the first line, and just expanded on that on what it meant to me. And the writing was the love, and that was the process. And and I think it was amazing. And I look at hip hop as the, the the universal accessible sport to music. You know, the same way soccer is. Soccer, you just needed something that looked like a ball and something that can be created as a net. You didn't need any expensive equipment. You didn't need any special training. You could just play. Hip-hop, you have your heartbeat. That's your rhythm. And you just need a story. And you don't need any special equipment. You don't need to know any instruments. You don't need to go to any special art school. You just have to you know, let your heartbeat set a rhythm and tell your story. And so, but what do you think separates the, um, like, I don't know, the best rappers from the worst because reality rap where they're telling their story, uh, you know, there's all kinds of rap. Then there's this kind of rap where, you know, oh, I'm dri- you know, driving in my expensive car and this and that, and it's not necessarily authentic, but the music's great. It's danceable and you like listening to it. I think when, when, you, when you have that ability to connect, so I think even with the, you know, with the certain rappers who do talk about the material items, if they do it very aspirational, so I think I'm thinking, for example, like that Jay-Z and Kanye West and Rihanna song, uh, We Gonna Run This Town Tonight. They're not singing to you and telling you about them gonna that they're gonna run this town. They're providing you with an anthem hmm. for you feeling when you feel like a million bucks. Or when we hear the black IP say, Tonight's gonna be a good night. They're not telling us about their night. They're giving us the anthem. They're giving us the language for our pre-drink on a Friday night before we head out to the club, before we head to the party. And I feel like when you're able to to be a mouthpiece for people who don't, so I think, you know, for me, it, it was called being a voice for the voiceless. So, you know, thinking about, you know, like, uh, you know, broken glass everywhere. You know, these guys are just describing their environments for people who may not have the tools themselves to do so. So, um, you know, being, being linguistical and, and, and being able to articulate yourself you know, is a combination of your education and your, you know, your nature and your learning style. And some people are going to be able to do that better than others. But some people, you know, I can't draw. I can't dance. I can't sing. These aren't things that I'm, I'm able to do. I'm able to put words together. That's my talent. But then other people can tell their story through interpretive dance. Other people can tell their story through painting. Other people can tell their story through uh, architecture or, or creating a sculpture. And you see that. I just saw something. Uh, I just saw painted on the side of a hotel uh, right by uh, Times Square. A beautiful, large, probably about 10-story high painting of a, a child's face. And in their eyes was two more paintings of children doing labor. And just being like, he told an entire story just in this one painting on the side of a building. And I think that's brilliant. So I think what hip-hop is, is just it's, it's storytelling the same way cave paintings were storytelling. And they're all essential. And I think we just got to the point now where people, and, and I say it in the intro of the book, you know, when I felt like a real writer. And the truth is, you're a real writer when you write. Whether you're published, whether you sold a book, whether you didn't, a real writer is somebody that writes, and but we've we've created these 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 bars or these uh, milestones of 
Oh no, you got to be signed to a major publisher. Oh, you gotta you gotta make it on the big podcast. Even even now, like when I was on your podcast, the amount of messages from friends who are who are avid fans who are like, "Oh, you made it." You know, you were on James's podcast, and and that goes in your head, like, "Oh, is that the definition of made it?" When I when I when I got into certain circles or I met certain people, and and for me, reminding myself is like, "No, I want. I like the fact that." I'm meeting some cool guys in, 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 a, in a comedy club, and we can talk some shit and have fun, and I can I can learn from these guys about where I can take my my business, where I can take my creativity, and how to have great people. Because I, as I said before, I want to move to this city, and I want to expand my friends and and have great experiences that way. And everyone can be our teacher in in that sense. So I think it's going to be you know probably the combination of just seeing the both books together. It's going to be about shedding the old to make room for the new. And, you know, taking the sandpaper and just scraping away all the stuff that TV, media, our, our parents with their limited scope taught us about what life needs to be like and, and really paying attention to where we are now and just being like, okay, this is who we are now uh, and this is my unique contribution to this world. And we don't know who's paying attention. Like, you didn't know I was paying attention in 2013 when you wrote that article about independent uh, and self-publishing. But that changed my That's the reason I'm here now. You know, and I don't know who's listening to this podcast. I don't know who's going to read this book. And part of me thinks that we don't need to care. You know, that's not why we're we're, we're, do, we're putting our, our part out and it's going to have a ripple effect. And it's our duty as human beings, if we want to be a part of this species, to continually progress as a collective. I love that. And I, uh, I that's why I like doing this podcast is every, every session is like a, a party for me. So, well, Humble the Poet, thanks once again. Uh, you have to, you're you're always welcome back. By the way, my, I appreciate our, that. Our saying is the best new guests are are our old guests because the more we have conversations, the more we get out of it. The the comfort level increases. It's just more fun. So, but you know, get the book. Things no one else can teach us. And humble, come on the podcast again. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Man. Thank you. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.